There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Right Lane, a podcast of the Tampa Bay Times. Each week, Times reporter Lane DeGregory discusses her stories and answers your questions. The focus is on craft. My name is Maria Carrillo, and I'm the enterprise editor at the Times. Today's topic, the little box that keeps on giving. Recently, Lane pitched an idea. This happens a lot. But this idea was about something she saw every day from her porch. She chose not to ignore it. Here's Lane with the story. The box is brown, with a glass face, sliding brass latch, and inside, two shallow shelves. It's perched on a post in the library parking lot on the main street into Gulfport. It's about the size of a medicine cabinet. No one owns it, no one oversees it, no one asks questions. Lime green letters above the door say, Little free pantry. Take what you need, give what you can. Every day it empties, refills, empties again, and provides food for dozens of families. We were worried people wouldn't stock it. We were worried people would raid it, said Margaret Toper, whose Gulfport Neighbors Group planned the project three years ago. But it's working somehow. So many people need help. So many want to help especially right now. During the coronavirus epidemic, Tober said, traffic to the box has tripled. People are donating everything from pickles to pineapples. And even folks who don't have anything to give have found a way to help. On a recent Tuesday about 2 p.m., the box was half full. A package of Quaker instant oatmeal sat sideways on the top shelf. Beneath it, a box of thin spaghetti leaned against a jar of Prego marinara sauce. Scott Pistana, 59, parked his bike on the curb, and peered inside. he lived in Gulfport since 1977, but recently moved to a small house outside the town limits. His girlfriend is disabled. His landscaping work dried up during the lockdown. They spent everything they had on rent and utility deposits. They don't have a car and couldn't get to larger food pantries downtown. This here, this box, it's a wonderful thing, Pistana said, reaching inside. He picked up the spaghetti. He had a jar of sauce at home, so he left that and the oatmeal. No need to be greedy, he said. He pedaled away, heading to the pier to fish for the rest of their supper. The idea, Tober said, started when a pregnant woman walked into the Gulfport Senior Center asking for food. She was told their pantry couldn't help her because she wasn't 55 or older. After Tober heard that story, she kept thinking of the hungry young woman being turned away. There was nowhere she could go in Gulfport, nowhere close enough to get on foot, said Tober. 67, who moved to the waterfront town when she was seven. She talked to neighbors about the need. Then she said she started seeing signs. Scrolling through Facebook, she found a page called Little Free Pantry. It included pictures of places throughout the country and a blueprint for building a box. Visiting her brother in Texas, she saw a free pantry in front of a cafe. Her niece told her about one near her college in Arkansas. We talked to a local woodworker, said Tober, who retired from Tech Data. Then we talked to the mayor, We were the first town in Tampa Bay to launch this. The first pantry opened outside Gulfport's fire station in 2017. The Presbyterian Church set one up soon after. The one at the library followed the next year. 
Tober didn't have a plan to keep it stocked. She just hoped that if they built it, folks would come. At first, we had a guy on a bicycle who'd bring a backpack and empty out everything. People complained, Tober said. So I saw him one day and asked him why he needed so much. He said he was feeding three families and taking food to his grandfather. I don't know if I believed him, but the whole premise of this project is don't judge. Most food banks required registration, identification, proof of age, income, or dependence. Some people are ashamed to ask for help. This box is always open, never staffed. It's deliciously anonymous, Tober said. Many people come by after dark. By 3 p.m. on that same Tuesday, the oatmeal was the only thing left. Then a blue minivan pulled up. Sit tight, Mom, the driver told an elderly woman in the passenger seat who was wearing a mask. I got a bunch of stuff I got to put in there. Anna Valsano, 52, moved from New York to Gulfport to care for her parents years ago. A retired legal secretary, she now lives 50 blocks north in St. Petersburg, but she still considers Gulfport home. I just do what I can here, she said, unloading bags from the back of her van. I feel so bad so many people are hurting. She'd gone shopping that morning, picked up groceries for herself, her parents, and whoever else might need them. She stuffed the box so full the door couldn't close. Five tins of tuna, four ears of corn, three cans of Campbell vegetable soup, two jars of Jif peanut butter, crunchy and smooth, a loaf of bakery bread, black beans, fruit loops, corn muffin mix, six bags of turkey chili ready to eat at room temperature. Thought folks might appreciate a little protein, Vlasno said, plus a Publix apple pie for dessert. A little more than an hour later, the shelves have been cleared out enough to shut the door. The box is busy as between 4 and 6 p.m., some people stop by every day to see what's for supper. Others come only once, searching for something to tide them over while they wait for an unemployment check. Many take just one fruit cup from the six-pack, leaving the rest for strangers. On this day, someone left a stack of AARP magazines. Someone else dropped off diapers and tampons. Pamela Taylor and her boyfriend, Daniel O'Neill, rode up on three-wheeled trikes. She's 70, lost her toes to diabetes, lives on Social Security. He's 36 and on disability. Age don't matter, he said, stroking her shoulder. They don't have a car and were out for a bike ride that afternoon when they saw the box. Taylor pulled down the sleeping mask she turned into a face mask and slid back the latch. Oh my gosh, I can't believe this. We just got blessed, she told O'Neill. I'm not going to be greedy, but wow, peanut butter. And look, it's the creamy kind. She put the jar in her bike basket, then looked up and saw the bread. Okay, this is crazy. Bakery bread? Are you kidding? So much better than wonder. Now I know what we're having for dinner tonight and tomorrow, and she was closing the door, then stopped. Maybe we should get something for Max. Max is homeless and lives down by the beach. Taylor grabbed a can of vegetable soup and smiled. He'll like that, she said. It'll go good with the peanut butter sandwich. By 6 p.m., the box was empty. An hour later, it was full again. Someone had left the most coveted commodity of all, toilet paper. So you and I are talking and you're like, hey, I have an idea. <laughs> Take it from there. Why? You were watching. You were Because uh, you have a porch out front and you're sitting there and you watch the world go by. Yeah, actually, my little office in my old house is a porch that's kind of been closed in. And then we built the deck off the front. So during the pandemic, it's been pretty much my world has been like this little office. And when I'm not working the little deck outside or when I'm interviewing people or whatever. But the box is right there. Like my house faces the main street that comes into our little town of Gulfport. So I can see the box like all day long. And I was just I've noticed it for a while. And I thought about it as like a little 
an interesting, you know, piece of our town. But once the pandemic started, I think I told you like, oh my God, it's just a constant stream of people, like not only taking, but dropping off, dropping off, dropping off and all night long, the people coming and going. And so I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And, and I think I asked you, like, can I write a story about a box? Like, <laughs> and, um, and it's a, not a big box. It's by any means, it's, that's pretty modest, but, um, anyway, but it, but yeah, so you, we said, okay, let's give it a shot. Cause you know, Lane's pitch is always, and this is really good for, for all you reporters out there say to your editor, just give me a day. Let me see if it works. You know, well, she and uh, John Pendergraft just sort of staked it out. You sat a little bit away, right? And you just watched for hours. <laughs> yeah. Luckily for me, John lives in Gulfport too, and he was game for it. So he just kind of walked over and he got here about one o'clock and we just put two like lawn chairs, two like camp chairs, maybe a hundred feet from the box and watch people. We kind of wanted to make sure we let them do their thing before we approach them. You know, so we let them like either drop off or pick up and then, but of course I was like eavesdropping and writing stuff down that I overheard, you know, as they came up and all. And actually everybody we talked to was fine giving us their name and letting their picture be made. So usually, you know, you get maybe one out of four or five that you approach, but everybody was like happy to share their little tiny stories. And so we reported a lot more than we needed from the people. Once we kind of decided it was about the box, I knew I didn't need like all these lengthy backstories of the people. Did they see you? Do they know, like, did they have any idea why you two were just sitting there? <laughs> I think they kind of noticed us, but then I had my badge on, you know, I always wear my badge. So I would walk up and say like, Hey, I'm with the Tampa Bay times and show them right away. I wasn't trying to like chat them up and pretend I'm just a neighbor, but we did both tell them that, you know, we, we told everybody like, Oh, I live in Gulfport too. And so it was kind of this instant connection of being your neighbor while you were reporting the story for the, the big town paper, you know? <laughs> So this story, which um, Lane reports it that day, you know, she comes home, we talk about it. It's a very, fairly easy structure, right? I mean, it has, you know, she basically frames it around a few hours of watching it on this particular day, puts in the backstory. I mean, so maybe two days total getting this story done. At the most. Got a a nice reception. It's still one of the ones that the editor at the paper here talks about because to him, it felt like such a a nice just sort of scene and a slice of life that was going on that really sort of illustrated the good and the bad, the challenges we were facing. And, you know, it, it was really a, an easy risk, I think. And believe me, if you just look up Free Little Pantry, I bet there's one in your neighborhood. Anybody out there could do this story. There's no, like, corporate oversight that you have to go through to get permission. <laughs> you know, there's there's no one monitoring it or, or babysitting it. So you guys can all go do this story in your town in a day or so, and hopefully your editor will talk about it. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that I love about you, Lane, is that you don't, um, you know, I've worked with some writers who feel like the story has to be big enough for them. You know, like if it's not a huge story with a capital H, it doesn't feel important or like it's worth the time. And it feels like with you, you like to strike that balance. You like to you like to find the smaller story that illustrates something bigger even if it's not going to be a Pulitzer winner, it's not going to be one of these things that later on in your career, maybe it's not going to be the one you look back on and say, oh, this, this was one of the highlights. But talk a little bit about that and why, why you like that balance. Well, for the first, you know, seven, eight years of my career, I was in a bureau where I was writing two or three stories a day. So I got really good at turning things around quickly and trying to like instant gratification, you know, report it today, get it in the paper tomorrow. And then as I, I veered more toward longer projects and enterprise work, it 
there's a lot of pressure. You know, if you're working on just two or three big stories or projects a year, it better be really good, you know? And there's a lot of pressure to think like people are going to read this and go, oh my God, why'd she spend all this time on this? You know, the little ones, I feel like, Kind of like Stephanie was talking about our columns, if you do a bunch of them, you're allowed to let go a little bit and they don't all have to be perfect, you know. But the things I'm looking for in the little stories are maybe something, like you said, it's not going to win a prize. It's not going to influence the next generation of writers, but maybe it will make a little bit of a difference. The other, I guess the other takeaway on this, too, is like my little story came after we'd already done a bunch of Metro stories about feeding Tampa Bay, you know, the big efforts of food pantries and drives and sort of the how many pounds and how many people. And I thought, oh, we've already covered that story a bit, but this was so different to just focus on this one little box. I thought it gave me permission, you know, to tell the the news of that story, but in a different way. And I do think the little ones, I think about like, is this a slice of life that somebody else could like relate to a snapshot of a moment in time? And can it make a difference? You know, will it help somebody? Which, in which case, that's so much better than winning a prize, right? And I watched this box quadruple in donations over the week after the story ran. And this story didn't run in print. I should say that too. The story just ran online on a Monday morning. And um, I didn't want it to go there. I told Maria, please put me in print. But it showed me people were reading because it, it was not a coincidence that the volume of donations to that box and the volume of people coming to take stuff in and out of it just quadrupled over that next week. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There have been a lot of topics in the last few weeks and months that Lane and I have talked about, we've been interested in the topic, and then somebody on the Metro side goes in and does a bigger story, like you're talking about, you know, covering the the efforts to feed the whole region. That's a big story, right? Somebody else had written about, for instance, what the chaplains were doing and how people were seeking to help people who were struggling because their family members might be really ill or dying. So sometimes the Metro staff will take a big, broad brush and they'll take a 3,000 foot view on something and we step in and sort of look for a day in the life or a moment that helps highlight something. And I think we've been very successful at doing both, giving people that bigger, broader picture. But another one that Lane did in the last few weeks was um, spending a day with a woman who's chaplain and how she was trying to help families who had loved ones in hospice care. So again, there had been the bigger, broader story, but looking for those opportunities, I think is always, I mean, they're just there, you know, and quite often it is a day or two. And I think, you know, when you're reading your own paper, you can also go through and say, I'm also often reading other people's stories saying, oh, I want to see the person doing that. I want to see the embodiment of what that is, not just hear that it's out there happening. And so you can steal from other colleagues' stories and just find a way to do a deeper dive or take a smaller slice off of that. So we also wanted to, this this story, of course, is an example of using an inanimate object as a character, which we've done, both of us have done over the years. And um, I'm not sure everybody always thinks that way, but 
it's fun to think that way, right? It's liberating because it's like, okay, it's another way you can approach a story. And it can be really big, big or really small, right? I remember when we were covering the, um, Maria said, I think there were four of us, two photographers and two reporters in Virginia to cover a hurricane. And remember you said that this town is the character, this town of Princeville, this African-American town primarily had been like completely buried by floodwaters before Katrina, maybe 10 years before Katrina. And you said from the beginning, as we tackled to do the rebuilding, like the character is the town. And of course we found characters within the town, but that was a really helpful way of thinking about it. Like I've read great stories about like following a French fry or spending a day in the life of a payphone booth, you know, or Stephanie wrote about a pair of shoes, like a pair of red pumps that was abandoned downtown. And just, you know, you, I think it's really fun if you find an object you can riff on. I know, um, talk about the Diane story, Maria, because that was really uh, groundbreaking. So I know Lane and I have mentioned before that when we when we worked together in Virginia, we were on a team, um, it was a narrative team, and the editor had wanted to get back to craft and have a team that really helped inspire the rest of the room in, in terms of storytelling. And we were assigned to do a weekly A1 Sunday feature. The, the goal was it had to be short, like around 25 inches or shorter, and obviously very well written, and then um, uplifting, which was the only part of it we hated because it, you know, having to force that was was uh, difficult. You know, as you might imagine, after a while, it became like, okay, how do we challenge each other to come up with something creative and interesting and different? And at one point, that was the task. Everybody was like, go look for an inanimate object to write about, and let's see who can who can do it, and not only who can do it, but who can write the shortest one. And uh, so Diane Tennant, who um, we used to work with, who was a very talented writer, and soon to be a grandma, by the way, yay, she, uh, she went out and found a tree. And it was a tree that had a plaque on it in honor of a guy who was long dead, but she used the tree to tell a story. And she walked into my office at one point, and all she said was, I won. And then <laughs> she left me this 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 uh story that was 112 words long. So I think I think we have time. I can I can read it. And I know you were not so, surprised that I did not write the shortest story. <laughs> <laughs> so here it is. Know that a tree was planted for a soldier who died in World War I, giving his all, that his name lived on for years after, because a little plaque by the tree gave it out that even after people stopped remembering who James Lynch was and why he gave his life on August 28, 1917, that his tree kept growing in Portsmouth City Park, that his selfless gift, quote, for God and country, unquote, has been accepted as a quiet challenge of remembrance by the tree, and that what it gives of itself is a vow that life cannot and will not be stopped, but must go on and on and on. Acorns. So... It was such a weird story for some people. And of course, it like they didn't know what to do with it on the print version. They didn't know how to design a 112-inch story. But uh, the people who got it loved it and thought it was just really unique and an interesting take, right? And, and again, it's like the things that are all around us, but we don't pay a lot of attention to. Do you think she read The Giving Tree? I think that was an inspiration, Shel Silverstein? Maybe so, although that's such a depressing 
know. Diane's was uplifting in a depressing way, too. <laughs> but 112 words, I, I will always remember that story because it is a challenge. You can tell a whole story like that in 112 right, words. Right. It actually also ran, Not me. It ran on the same day that we started an eight-part series. So I, it was a lovely little um, contrast there. I, I just think as a writer, it's another... It's another way for you to look at the world and, and, and a way to sort of embrace something. And like, like you did with the pantry box, the box is more interesting, really, than any of these individuals necessarily, right? You're not going to do a big takeout on the lovely woman who comes in to give all this food. I mean, that's very nice of her, but it's just a moment, right? And the people who need it, they have their own stories, but the box is what connects these folks. And so right. the box becomes more interesting, actually, in many ways, I think, than a lot of these characters might be. And John and I talked about that a bit at the beginning. We were hoping we'd get givers and takers. We didn't want to just get the needy people or the do-gooder people. And so it worked out as a nice balance. But yeah, the box was the conduit for all of that. You know, I think Maria edited out some other weird stuff that people put in the box because it didn't seem relevant. But there were like postcards to go do fire walking or something like that. There was like advertisements for like little book studies and Bible studies. And so there was other stuff besides food, but we kind of like stuck to the food in the box. So um, maybe I'm going to get to fire walking as my next story. Oh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> I will note like when you, if you want to listen to this again, or of course we'll put the link to the story, but I, again, you know, there's so much great detail in this story that Lane comes away with, not just the particular brands that are there, but you know, uh, yeah, whether it's uh, smooth and chunky and uh, the, so the directions on the food. I just can't underscore enough how important it is for those of you who are out there writing and for editors to try to get reporters to bring that back because it's everything becomes so much more um, visual and you feel like you're there. So Lane helps transport me there. And that's what you want to do when you, you have a story like this. Okay, so if you have a question for Lane or want to suggest a podcast topic, find us on our Facebook group or email it to writelane at tampabay.com. That's W-R-I-T-E-L-A-N-E at tampabay.com. Join us next week on Wednesday morning for the next podcast. This podcast was produced by Austin Fast. Music was composed and performed by Dan DeGregory. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.